Welcome everyone to our Hoover Virtual Policy Briefing Series. I'm Tom Gilligan, Director of the Hoover Institution. For more than a century, the Hoover Institution has been collecting knowledge and generating ideas that support freedom and improve, improve the human condition. Our work has profoundly impact, impacted public policy initiatives in the United States and around the world. These policy briefings provide an opportunity for you to hear directly from some of our nation's top scholars on the pressing issues facing the world during this difficult time. As we all unite to confront the challenges of the worldwide pandemic, conversations like this have never been more important. We will be taking audience questions today, so I encourage you to submit yours using the Q&A button located at the bottom of your screen. Today's briefing is from Condoleezza Rice, the Thomas and Barbara Stevenson Senior Fellow on Public Policy at the Hoover Institution. She served as the 66th Secretary of State of the United States the second woman and first African-American woman to hold this post. She was also President George W. Bush's National Security Advisor. We look forward to Dr. Rice being the next director of the Hoover Institution as well this fall. Welcome, Condi. Thank you for joining us today. Good morning. Uh, you're an expert in the international system. How do you think the international system is responding to this pandemic? Well, good morning and welcome to everyone here on our, our webinar. Well, I think the real story is that the international system is not responding. It's individual countries that are responding. Uh, if ever we've seen the triumph of sovereignty, we've seen it now. It's maybe not surprising that when people are frightened or when there's something that's unusual or uh, we don't have any experience, uh, people tend to uh, to go back to what they know best. And uh, particularly in democracies, these are elected leaders that uh, they can hold accountable. And so the response has really been country by country. We see it in things like travel bans between countries. Uh, we see it in uh, the fact that it's uh, individual countries that are deciding the pace and rate at which they are going to tell people to shelter in place. You see uh, that uh, it's the, the national uh, healthcare person or the national healthcare expert that's really there next to the prime minister or next to uh, the president. And so uh, the international system really hasn't been uh, on point. It's really been individual countries. And that cuts against the grain, really, of the way that we thought about globalization. And it particularly cuts against the grain. And maybe we can talk more about this in a place like Europe where they have tried for decades to create a borderless uh, territory in Europe where there's one passport, where people move easily from country to country. And uh, now we see that uh, when it starts in Italy, it spreads quite quickly in Europe and you see individual countries trying to clamp down. Yeah, let's, uh, let's stay with that topic for a, bit, a little bit and how international institutions respond. Uh, you know, people have commented on the role that the UN is playing, the World Health Organization. We have a question here about should NATO be doing more? It, it seems to me there's an instinct for people who believe in the global community to want global institutions to do more. Is that is that a realistic expectation or is it misplaced or how should we think about that? Well, I, I think this may unfold in phases and uh, that's okay. Uh, right now, the response is that countries are trying to take care of their own. Mm -hmm. uh, they are doing so by making sure that uh, they get their citizens back home. That's one really kind of interesting response. Let's get all of our citizens back home where we can take care of our own. Uh, they are responding with uh, travel bans and uh, airlines are basically not flying between countries. But I do think the time uh, should come relatively soon when we see, uh, I would hope, 
international institutions take a bigger role, particularly I think the G20, which is the 20 largest economies in the world, uh, could take a role in helping to coordinate a, an economic response in the way that they did after the financial crisis of 2008-2009. Certainly, uh, when we think about the effect of this pandemic on developing countries, it's going to be important to leverage some of the work that we've done over the last uh, couple of decades to improve the healthcare outcomes in those countries. One really interesting approach that the United States can use is we have a huge network built up because of the president's emergency plan for AIDS relief, starting with President Bush, continued by President Obama, going through President Trump, where we helped uh, developing countries to build whole healthcare systems and distribution networks to be able to distribute antiretrovirals even way out in uh, the countryside. So those are the kinds of things that I I hope countries will uh, band together. It's it's kind of interesting, Tom. This is the exact opposite response than we had after 9-11, when after 9-11, countries realized that terrorism was a borderless threat, that in fact, you had to share information, you had to share intelligence information, you had to share law enforcement. We had within a very short period of time, a way to track terrorist financing across borders. And um, hopefully once we're through the really frightening part of this, uh, countries will start to band together to, uh, to think about how to, to uh, get a response and also how not to let it happen again. So timing is important in the way you answer Timing is important. For right now, it's totally understandable that uh, prime ministers, presidents are going to concentrate on what's happening at home. Yeah. Um, let's talk about the role of the U.S. response or position in the world right now. A commonly expressed is that we should be doing more to lead the world response to the global pandemic. What do you think the United States, uh, what do you think of the United States response? Is it adequate? Well, right now, again, uh, the United States is trying to save New York. It's, it's uh, worrying about what's going on uh, internally. That's, that's understandable. But it, we haven't, it's not as if we've done nothing. In fact, uh, the administration has made available several hundred million uh, of dollars for uh, COVID-19 response in developing countries. Um, I'm quite certain that out at our embassies and uh, in, in places like that, we're, we're trying to help other countries with their response. Uh, we also, uh, as I mentioned, we have the AIDS uh, Emergency Network, which uh, helps countries that are uh, in the developing world to respond to this crisis. So in, in time, I think the United States will take a bigger leadership role. Uh, but for now, uh, the foreign assistance should be welcome. And uh, the fact that, you know, it's not going to help to right now call together a big conference to talk about response to the virus. It's just not going to be helpful. Yeah. It will be helpful in uh, a few months to do exactly that and uh, also to try to help the world plan better for the last time, for the next time around. Got it. If you're joining us, I'm Tom Gilligan, and this is the Hoover Institution's virtual policy briefing with Condoleezza Rice. Uh, Connie, you were the National Security Advisor during the SARS outbreak. What are the important uh, similarities or differences between then and now? Well, one of the unfortunate similarities is it was also hard to get information out of China during the SARS outbreak. We knew that something had happened. Uh, It was very hard to get answers out of China of what had happened. And uh, that is unfortunately a recurring pattern this time around. And it's probably... 
the most troubling aspect of, of this crisis. Uh, now, it is kind of in the nature, it is in the nature of the Chinese system, an authoritarian system, that control of information is power. Control of the narrative is power. So we shouldn't be surprised that when this outbreak happened in Wuhan, they silenced the young uh, physicians and medical students who were trying to sound the alarm. Can you imagine those people being silenced uh, in the United States or in any country, in Germany or Brazil? No, somebody would have picked up the story in the press. It would have been known that there was a problem. But uh, the Chinese did what authoritarians do. They gathered, they, they silenced uh, those who were trying to sound the alarm, and they wanted to have time to develop the narrative that would be uh, blessed by the Communist Party of China, which means it probably had to go all the way to Beijing before you could say anything. And so uh, it's in the nature of the system, but it was a real problem. And there's, there's going to be a kind of reckoning, I think, for China on this with its own population which was angered by the lack of information. And certainly the international community ought to be raising with the Chinese uh, very strongly uh, why we always get this response. Yeah, let, let me push you on that because we have all the questions about China right now, to be honest with you. Uh, let me combine a couple of them. Uh, Gina asked, what sanctions and how should China be held to account for this? Roger says, Dr. Rice, in your opinion, what is the proper measured responses to China and the CCP leadership? who clearly withheld critical information about the Wuhan virus in light of the hundreds of thousands of deaths and trillions of dollars of cost to the world? Well, there's both a public part of this and there's a private part of this. The public part of this, I think, uh, over the next months is just to let it be known that China responded in the way that it did or didn't respond, let me put it that way, because the Chinese are going to try to create, they're even trying to do this now, a counter-narrative. Well, when we found out about it, we got on top of it. Look at how quickly through social distancing and quarantine, look how quickly we recovered. And oh, by the way, we've been helping the rest of the world by sending uh, PPEs and uh, by sending help and aid to all of the, the world. Uh, they're going to try to shift the narrative from their initial responsibility for not fessing up to what was happening to we got on top of it and then we helped the rest of you. That's how they're going to try to shift the narrative. Don't let it happen. Mm -hmm. We have to have a really honest assessment of how this happened, where it started, when it started, when the, the Communist Party knew and why they didn't uh, get out there. That's the public part. Yeah. The private part is you have to go to the Chinese and say, you can't keep doing this. You are a response. You have to be a more responsible partner a more responsible power given your weight now in the international system. You're not just some little developing country that when something happens, it doesn't have an impact. Your people travel, your people work in other countries. Uh, there were a lot of Chinese workers apparently in Italy at the time. Was that the transmission belt? We don't know for sure. But if we're going to get a handle on how this thing moved, the fact that China is such a big player and its people travel and its people work elsewhere is a big part of the story. And so I think there's both a public uh, acknowledgement of what happened, but also some private conversations with the Chinese um, about how we don't let this happen again. Interesting. Um, you know, and then a natural question that arises is, is jawboning enough to get them to have a, a more correct attitude towards the World Health Organization? And 
or sharing scientific data that has an impact on the rest of the world? Or do you have to couple it with sanctions or tariffs or limiting trade? Or what, how, how would you as a former Secretary of State think about something like that? I would certainly try the persuasion route first. Uh, because I think that if you keep the focus on how this started and China's role in it, they will actually be embarrassed by that. Mm -hmm. I think that if you let them shift the narrative to all they've done with sending out those PPEs, then you're probably not going to prog get progress. But I would really keep the focus. And I'd go to the UN Security Council and I'd call a meeting and they'll try to veto anything that comes out of it. But I'd call a meeting and I'd say, we're going to share, the United States is going to share the information. Maybe this is where you can bring the Europeans and others along. We're going to share the information on how we think this started. And I would try that campaign first because uh, I don't really think, first of the U.S. economy, everybody's economy is going to be trying to recover. <laughs> I don't mm -hmm. think we want to shock the system more with more sanctions and more trade wars and the like at a time when it's going to be trying to recover. So I try certainly to try that method first of uh, let's let's just call it uh, calling calling names and uh, and sending a message that uh, what they did was unacceptable. Yeah, Connie, here's an interesting question that I think is about uh, deterrence and what our how our adversaries use this circumstance. It's from Jessica. She says. Hello, I'm a government student at the University of Texas at Austin. I was wondering what you think Russia is learning about how the U.S. handles this kind of crisis. Well, it's a very good question. And early on, uh, the Russians were saying, oh, we've done this so much better because initially their numbers were apparently relatively low. Well, as the numbers have started to go up, you're not hearing that so much anymore. And in fact, you're starting to get stay-at-home orders and all the things that you're seeing in the rest of the countries. I'm told uh, by others that actually they're being issued by the mayor of Moscow and uh, the prime minister, that President Putin has decided to sort of take himself out of the bad news business of this. Um, and that eventually, of course, I can tell you when it's over, he will take credit for whatever happened. Uh, but I think that the Russians who initially would have said, oh, our system is so much better at this, are learning that actually their system isn't that much better. There are two different Russias, of course. There's one Russia of city dwellers uh, who circulate, travel. Uh, there's also a Russia that's kind of 19th century villages that probably will see none of this because uh, people don't circulate. So it, it has to be a little bit also, which Russia are you talking about? Yeah. Yeah. Um... Connie, there's, this, this pandemic is, is bound to have a lots of long-run impacts. Um, so tell us what you think will be the impact on globalization, global supply chains, uh, the free movement of people around the world, and just the trust that's necessary to sustain a system like that. Well, you just said the essential word, which is trust. Uh, are people going to trust that it's safe to circulate again? And that may take some time. It may take some time before people want to travel outside of their own countries. And we're, we're all learning that we can do an awful lot uh, through virtual uh, means, that we can do a lot online. You, you might see for a while that uh, all of those conferences that we're used to going to with huge numbers of people, that, that doesn't take place for a while. But I certainly hope that in time, uh, what we've built over decades and decades and decades that uh, people do travel, that they do circulate, that they do study together, as uh, we see in universities, uh, that we're not going to see the putting up of walls because we had this particular experience. That may be an initial response, but here is where 
leadership by the United States and leadership by the other major uh, economies through something like the G20 could start to send signals that despite what we've had to do in this initial phase where we've had to shut down for very good reasons, we don't want to stay this way. We do want to see the opening up um, of of people doing business and commerce across borders. We do want to see students studying in uh, not in, in different countries so that we keep uh, continuing to get to know each other better. Uh, those messages are going to be very important. I'm concerned about uh, what the United States will experience in terms of foreign students. Um, it's not just uh, Stanford and Harvard that have foreign students. If you go to small liberal arts colleges, uh, in the Midwest, or you go to big state uh, universities, there are a lot of foreign students and we're gonna have to send out a message that we want them to come back, even if they've gone home, that we want them to come back. And uh, I think this is a place that the messages are gonna be extremely important. In terms of global supply chains though, I think you're gonna see an impact. Um, there is already, uh, there are already in Congress several bills about uh, China and supply chain. And the first, salvo is going to be about how dependent we are on China in the pharmaceutical space, mm. whether it is for uh, what is uh, for the ingredients or for the fact that a lot of generics uh, are made there because of cheaper conditions, uh, or how dependent even major pharmaceutical companies are on um, assembly and manufacture in China. And uh, there are, are those who think that we need to bring that capacity back to the United States because it's been shown to be strategic now. It's been shown to be a matter of national security that we control our own supply chains on uh, the pharmaceutical and medical side. That's gonna be difficult to do, but I think you're gonna get a lot of pressures. On broader supply chain, that's been going on for some time anyway, um, because of the, the extended trade war, uh, companies have been re-evaluating uh, their supply chains. I saw that uh, Peter Navarro, President's Trade Advisor, said the other day, uh, we may even bring, uh, give companies huge benefits uh, to be able to bring their uh, manufacturing supply chains back home. Well, they may not go, may not stay in China. The likelihood is they'll go to other places, maybe Vietnam. The Indians think they'll be a major beneficiary. But I do think you're going to see some major reordering of how uh, companies think about supply chains. Uh, th this one hasn't turned out to be very secure, and they're going to take that message. Yeah, interesting. Uh, David asked, um, he asked about bad actors, and w w may, they, may they attempt to take advantage of the COVID-19 crisis to advance their own interests? Is this realistic? And if so, what are the more dangerous threats to deal with or consider? Well, uh, David is right. One of the things that you worry about is that uh, bad actors will try to take advantage of, call it the distraction, that all major leaders are now focused on the COVID-19 crisis, or maybe even uh, that, uh, so you're just kind of not paying attention. Um, I will tell you that after 9-11, the very first thing that I did when I got to that bunker was to get the State Department to send out a cable to every post in the world and say, the United States of America is functioning. And that's a message to your friends, but it's also a message to your foes, don't try anything. And it's a different situation, but I am quite certain that our intelligence agencies, um, our uh, defense agencies, uh, the Pentagon, uh, they may not be on higher stages of alert, but they're certainly on higher stages of vigilance. 
to make sure that nobody's going to try to take advantage. I'm sure they're watching the North Koreans like a hawk. I'm sure they're watching the Iranians like a hawk because um, you don't want anyone to take advantage. But uh, while all the others, and by the way, even probably members of the National Security Council staff, while others are worrying about this crisis, uh, we certainly have people who are uh, trying to make sure that, that no uh, bad actor takes advantage of us. Yeah. Connie, tell us a little bit about, about the developing world. Uh, what's going on there? How's the, the pandemic going to affect them and our relationships with them over the years to come? Well, the biggest impact has been in uh, big cities, again, where people circulate, uh, places like in South Africa, which is an economy that's very integrated into the international system and where people move around a lot. Uh, but I, I, I think people have been a little surprised at the fact that you haven't had an explosion of this virus in uh, a lot of the developing world. Now, it may well be that it's the lack of testing or the lack of reporting uh, that is the reason for that. But there are some other theories, and I caution that they're theories. Uh, for instance, is it because the populations in the developing world tend to be younger? So they may be asymptomatic, but you're not getting the catastrophic effects of the virus because we know it affects older people uh, more uh, than it does uh, very young people. And these are very young populations. Uh, they've been through a lot of pandemics. Um, is there some kind, uh, something building up there in terms of their system, maybe even in terms of immunities that we don't fully understand? Another theory. Uh, I really do think that the one thing we should be focused on is um, through the President's Emergency Plan for AIDS Relief that President Bush started, as I've said, other administrations have uh, continued. We really helped a lot of developing countries build up a pretty good healthcare system. And we helped them build up a pretty good distribution system, even for places that were quite far away from the cities to deliver antiretrovirals. Um, to the degree that those are still in place, we ought to be encouraging countries. And we weren't the only ones. The, the Global AIDS Fund did some of this. Uh, some of the uh, G20 countries, some of the e European Union countries helped to build up these healthcare systems. We should be really helping to mobilize them now just in case you get a pandemic outbreak uh, in the developing world. Interesting. The, uh, I know that you read Henry Kissinger's essay in the Wall Street Journal last week, which basically um, predicted that, that the world order would change dramatically. Uh, Lauren has kind of a more pointed version of that, and it's the following. After the world watched our weak and chaotic response to the pandemic, and I'll, I'll add, and with China emerging as a, a power, a, a, a economic power, political power, is this crisis marking the end of the Western hegemony on Earth? Well, I, I don't think we've had a hegemony for quite a long time, but, <laughs> let, but let me say this. You know, there's there's an old saying that the United States finally gets it right after it's tried everything else. <laughs> and um, there've been a lot of times when we started slowly. World War II, we started slowly. Uh, but pretty soon the great capacity of this country to turn out war material, to put women to work where the men had gone to war, the ability of individuals, the private sector to really step up and mobilize uh, was what made us able to ultimately defeat uh, the German war machine. 
And uh, you're seeing some elements of that now as the private sector steps up. I saw a very interesting little piece this morning uh, that people are making masks in droves. Everybody who has a sewing machine is making a mask now and selling them on various sites. So we're probably going to have more masks than we could ever want. Not medical masks, but just for ordinary people who want to go out for a walk. Uh, the ability of a decentralized system to respond what looks like chaotically, but maybe ultimately effectively, uh, is something that we shouldn't underestimate. And as to China, uh, we have to, and it goes back to this narrative that they're trying to build. Uh, they, that system should have responded to those people who were trying to sound a warning alarm early, like that young doctor. Instead, they silenced them. They threatened them. They arrested them. And that's what caused the thing to spread. Now, if we let them turn that into a narrative, of, oh, yes, we are now giving out masks in the world, mm -hmm. then, yes, it will have an effect on uh, our standing and theirs. But, you know, there is some backlash to this uh, diplomacy by uh, sending out supplies. And it's coming from people who are reminding them that they might not have needed those masks had this not started um, in Wuhan. And I go back. It, this isn't the first time we had this problem with SARS as well. We had it with avian bird flu. And so um, this is going to have to be um, a, a time when there's a reckoning for China as well. And as to the United States, yes, um, I, uh, Dr. Fauci is right. We, we should have responded much more quickly. But um, now that we are responding, we're seeing some of the strengths of our decentralized uh, federal system. Connie, I'm getting a lot of questions about China and the World Health Organization in Taiwan. Uh, John asked the following very specific question. Do we now have some leverage with the Chinese relative to their isolation of Taiwan? This is a very uh, important point, um, and it's something we really ought to press. Uh, when I was Secretary of State, we spent a lot of time trying to get the Chinese to at least allow Taiwan to be admitted to the WHO because we said it's a health organization. Uh, we don't have to suggest that Taiwan is a separate country to want it to be a part of the health system of the world. And uh, they wouldn't budge. And you're seeing uh, the kind of backstory to why the World Health Organization shut down that young woman who was trying to question about Taiwan is that China has made it uh, one of its most important efforts to make sure that Taiwan never gets represented in anything that might suggest that it's not a part of China. And uh, the World Health Organization was sort of responding to that in the way that they answered that question. So yes, it is time to have that discussion. It's also, I'm fully of the view, we, we need to take a look at uh, whether the World Health Organization has been politicized here. Um, it hasn't responded particularly well. Um, it seemed to accept initially the uh, Chinese argument that uh, there was no human-to-human -human transmission with this, uh, with this disease. But of course, a lot of people thought there wasn't a human-to-human -human transmission. But uh, it hasn't been, uh, to my mind, a very effective response. It's uh, important to look at it. And by the way, there are UN organizations that seem not to get as politicized. Uh, UNICEF has been an organization that I think has been very effective at, at not being political and therefore being able to operate in all kinds of places, no matter what the circumstances. We need to take a hard look at whether the WHO can do that. 
I mean, I think we're all puzzled about why the United States wasn't more prepared for this pandemic um, than we were. Uh, Robert asked the following question. President George W. Bush called for the country to prepare against a coming pandemic in 2005 at the National Institute of Health. Why wasn't more done to prepare? You're in government this time, so help us understand from your experience what happened. Well, it's a kind of interesting story because President Bush read a book about the 1918 pandemic, and then he read everything he could about pandemics. And he came back and he said, we have got to get prepared because it will come way, one way or another. And my colleague, Fran Townsend, who at the time was the uh, National Homeland Security person, said, I'm dealing with terrorism. Please, do I really have to deal with pandemics? But he was right. And uh, <clears throat> what happened is what often happens. Um, when we have uh, something uh, like a pandemic, like uh, SARS, there's a curve at which we're mobilized and then we tend to forget and things tend to go back to where we were. Um, maybe we need this time to learn something from uh, what we did with terrorism. We actually created the, the National Counterterrorism Center, which uh, institutionalized that ability to deal with terrorism. And by the way, to link to similar systems that were built in other countries. Um, I think after this is over, we need to look at whether we need some more permanent structure uh, on the pandemic side. Um, I have colleagues at Stanford in biology who will tell you that we're gonna continue to experience this uh, and not just this kind of pandemic, but a friend of mine who often says the bugs are winning. And if we think the bugs may be winning, maybe we need some more permanent kind of structure because we, we do tend to forget. I'll be a little bit, I'm a little bit uh, sympathetic with those who are in positions of leadership right now because uh, you can never quite plan for what you actually experience. So if you had said, uh, this is a pandemic that's not going to affect children practically at all, mm -hmm. you, you wouldn't have thought that. And so the next crisis, the next pandemic will be different, but I do think some more permanent structures to deal with it may be necessary. Yeah. Uh, we've all read in the newspapers and on news reports about the uncertainty associated with the origin of the virus. Uh, so Thomas has a question that kind of gets to that. He says, is there an inkling at all that this could have been other than an unfortunate natural biological event? Well, I, I, let me just later us. I don't believe it was intentional in any way or that it was some form of bioterrorism. I just don't think there's any reason to believe that the Chinese would have endangered their own population and their own economy for that matter uh, for in, in that way. Um, there are some inklings out there uh, that there was a lab that was um, engaged in experimentation to try to prevent the next SARS uh, pandemic. So it was for good reasons if, if they were doing it. Uh, there's a news report out today in one of the major papers that uh, some people in the State Department who were actually serving in China uh, visited a lab near there and said, boy, the practices don't look very good here. Uh, so there are inklings here and there as the questioner said, uh, but I don't think we, we know uh, after this again is uh, a conversation to have with the Chinese and to put together the testimonies of people who might have been around uh, and watched the transmission. Was that market really the place that this happened? Um, this is a place that the Chinese could, could really come clean and, and help a lot, but I don't think it was intentional. Uh, might it have been something other than a wet market that uh, remains to be seen?
Yeah. Uh, Connie asked a question which asked you to uh, refer to your experience as Secretary of State. And I don't think she means it as a asking you to uh, assess Secretary Pompeo either. It's, it's If you were currently the Secretary of State, what would you recommend as the first steps to get the U.S. economy going again, especially as it relates to our relations with other countries? Well, the, um, the question of when the U.S. economy is going to be uh, going again, of course, is one that uh, the president and the governors are going to have to weigh the health care advice that they're getting or the advice they're getting from, from uh, their uh, health systems and their uh, experts uh, against the, the continued shutdown of the economy, which is starting to have just huge effects on people's lives. And um, I don't have anything particularly to add to that except to say that um, everybody is going to want to see those economies getting going again, and it will affect U.S. leadership how quickly we come out of the economic recession that's now being predicted by any number of people. But I will say that the signals we send about how we intend to come out of that crisis are important signals. Uh, do we signal that uh, we're going to engage in more trade wars with people? Do we signal that there are more sanctions coming? These would be uh, elements that I would think would actually dampen uh, the sentiment for uh, economic recovery in ways that we, we don't need at this particular point in time. It's another reason that, um, uh, and I keep mentioning the G20, because the G20 is the 20 largest uh, economies. Uh, they actually did get together after the financial, or during the financial crisis of 2008, 2009. They put out some principles about uh, not engaging in protectionist measures uh, to be fair, some still engaged in protectionist measures, but there were uh, those signals about how uh, to come out of this together, because the truth of the matter is the U.S. economy can't really fully recover in isolation, given the nature of uh, globalization. And so uh, just sending a signal that we're, we're not going to engage in trade wars, even if we want supply chains to come home, even if we want manufacturing to come home, um, I, I think that could be um, an important message uh, to the world. And uh, if, if you could pretty early on start some discussions about what trade, um, trade policies you might, or trade agreements you might uh, restart with the UK or others, that would also be a very good signal. Connie, here's another question, which asks you to, again, rely on your experience, but this time as a leader in the education sector. Uh, this is Renosa from UK wants to know, what do you think the impact of the pandemic will be on higher education and on the higher education system? Uh, this is really a question I think we need to give a lot of thought to as leaders in, in, in the academy. Uh, we have known for some time that online learning was coming in ever larger, uh, people were engaging it in ever larger numbers. We've known for a long time that our students are much more proficient at the virtual world than we uh, are those of us who teach them. And so we are really gonna have to, now that we've said you can learn online essentially as well as you can learn in the classroom, uh, particularly with larger classes, what do we want the role of online learning to be in the context of a broader uh, educational experience? Um, how much do we want students to be in huge classrooms 
where actually in some of the disciplines, they might be better off to be able to do personalized learning where they can learn at their own pace. I know I would have benefited from personalized learning in geometry because I never got it. And maybe going back over it four or five times online, I would have gotten it. And so I think it's up to educators to say, all right, we've told you to study online. Let's now really understand that experience and see how it fits into the broader educational experience. It can't replace the one-on-one -on -one or the 20-on-one -on small seminar, we, we, we don't think. But our students um, are very adept at this virtual world. Universities uh, can't whistle past the graveyard here. This is going to change who yeah. we are, how we deliver uh, knowledge, and uh, I hope we're ahead of the curve, not behind it. Got it. Uh, Connie, you're a student of liberty and governance and democracy, and there are a couple really interesting questions here I want to ask you about. Uh, Katrina asked, do you think that this virus will have a negative impact on the democratic processes in developing countries? And I presume she means that there's more tendency for authoritarianism to kind of deal with it. And can the United States help to mitigate this? Well, absolutely. There will be authoritarians uh, who will try to take advantage of this and say, see, um, I'm able now to control these circumstances and you're going to do better in a controlled environment who will try to control what knowledge people get. Uh, yes, there, there will be that. Uh, but my, I, I really do believe that authoritarians uh, generally show that a lot of them are actually not very good at governing. And uh, that there are people will see that. And uh, those of us who care about the spread of democracy across the world, those of us who care about those people who want the same rights that we have, uh, should be preaching that, mes uh, that message. And we should be shoring up uh, civil society to help to deal with some of the problems that these countries are going to face. In a lot of these places, um, civil society is the last bastion against complete authoritarianism. Mm -hmm. Those are the people who in uh, their small groups for uh, election reform or women's rights or uh, for environmental um, sustainability in these countries, that's the kind of uh, last, uh, last line of defense. And so uh, a major effort to try to shore up civil society, I think would be very helpful now against uh, what the, the, the uh, person who asked the question is absolutely right. There will be authoritarians who try to use all of the tools, whether it's tracking or the like, uh, contact tracing, for instance, yeah. who you've been seeing. Well, contact tracing in the hands of a democracy is one thing. Contact tracing in the hands of an authoritarian regime is quite another. And so these are things to, uh, to definitely watch out for. Yeah, you know, Matt asked that question exactly. He says, what might the long-term impact on U.S. liberties be? Will some of the restrictions imposed by local and national agencies now remain in place after this threat has diminished? So contract tracing, you, you mentioned it, the use of technology, Google, Facebook, et cetera, to trace people uh, and find out what they're doing, what their temperature is. Uh, the ability for state and local officials to just tell people stay at home. It's, I, I've discovered something about our democracy and the power of governors in the, in the past month. Will that continue? Uh, well, it's gonna continue for a while. And um, I, I think if you ask the great majority of Americans, they are voluntarily willing for the time being to be told what to do. Now we're kind of ungovernable so, sort and that's only gonna go on so long and we've already seen a little bit of slippage. Uh, but in a crisis like this, uh, it's always been the case that um, we look to authority 
And we are more willing than at other times to limit our individual rights and liberties for the greater good. And that's what we're doing right now. Now, that won't last forever. And uh, it's one reason that I think governors are starting to think about how, what release valves can they use to give people the sense that they've got control of their own lives again. Now, when it comes to things like contact tracing and uh, Google and, and what Facebook is doing, a lot of that will be voluntary. Um, you can say, you can't take my temperature, but I can say, well, then you can't go in here and potentially infect other people. So some of it will be uh, voluntary. But I, I will say this, I worry not at all about uh, the permanent loss of our liberties um, given the measures that we're taking right now, because we have so many institutions and so many levels and a free press and civil society that's gonna be a check on how long these um, authorities can uh, control what we do, it, it will. It's already a conversation about whether certain liberties are being abridged. That's our, uh, that, that's our great protection. In authoritarian systems, nobody's having that conversation. In our system, you're gonna have it. And I'll make one other point. We balance security and uh, our liberties across institutions. The presidency is always going to be, as the commander in chief, as the protector of the country, more concerned about the security side. The Congress will pass laws to determine how much of this stays in place and how much doesn't. And ultimately, we have the courts. And I can guarantee you that somewhere along here, somebody's going to take it all the way to the Supreme Court if they think that their constitutional rights have been violated. And so we have the protections of institutions uh, that I think will function just fine. For now, though, let me be very clear, for now, we're doing something quite amazing. The Chinese can order people and their penalties for not following the orders. We're basically asking 300 million, 300 million Americans to make good individual choices on behalf of the greater good. And I have to say, I'm pretty proud of the way we've, we're doing it right now. Um. Connie, thanks for your comments today. We've reached the end of the hour. Uh, I just want to close by just maybe putting some pressure on you. you. You've served in government during some tough times, 9-11, SARS, uh, the Great Recession. Um, you, you're bound to learn some lessons about resiliency from that. You're bound to learn some lessons about governing in conflict. In closing, what, what could you share with us about our current times and what kind of optimism can you leave us with as we close today? Well, I can uh, say that I've seen uh, so many times how resilient uh, the United States is. Um, first and foremost, because we have so many sources of resilience, whether it's individuals who have taken on responsibility for making sure that the person next door who might be elderly is getting their groceries without risk, uh, whether it's those people who are making masks and uh, selling them on the internet, whether it's uh, the people who uh, are in, uh, in healthcare workers and first responders who are taking their own lives into their hands to go and serve. And uh, we owe them enormous gratitude and the best protections that we can give them. But they are there. Those volunteers from health uh, systems around the country who went to New York to help 
under the circumstance. Uh, the government can't order that. That's a resiliency that comes from within, individual citizens helping individual citizens. We have the resiliency of innovation, uh, the multiple efforts now to, to get a vaccine, the multiple efforts to get therapeutics that might help to treat the disease uh, for those for whom it's more uh, catastrophic. And uh, yes, the resiliency of a federal system that doesn't put all of the pressure on Washington, but where governors are uh, and, and local healthcare officials are trying to make uh, good decisions for their citizens. So I've seen the resiliency before, and I want to repeat something I said before. Sometimes it takes us a while to get going, but boy, when we get going and the private sector gets involved in the way uh, that they are, um, this is a pretty resilient society, pretty resilient country because it has so many so many sources of resiliency. And finally, uh, when we get through this, I think we're gonna go back out into the world and help others uh, to be resilient too, which is the lesson of the compassion uh, that we had in dealing with the AIDS epidemic and dealing with Ebola. And um, I think we'll be there to do it again. Secretary Connelisa Rice, thank you for today's discussion, Connie, it was really fun. Thank you. Our next Hoover virtual policy briefing will be Thursday at 11 a.m. Pacific and 2 p.m. Eastern. Hoover senior fellows and political scientists Doug Rivers and David Brady will discuss COVID-19 and politics. Doug Rivers is a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution and a professor of political science at Stanford University. He is also chief scientist at UGov PLC, a global polling firm. David Brady is a senior fellow emeritus at the Hoover Institution. He has published seven books and more than 100 papers on elections, politics, and public policy. You can join Thursday's briefing at the same link you signed in on today. And you will find more research on the coronavirus by Hoover Institution Fellows at our website, hoover.org, under the COVID-19 tab. I want to thank you all for attending today. I look forward to seeing you on subsequent events. Please stay healthy. Goodbye.